Episcopal Church, we have all sorts of strange titles and phrases. Rector is the senior pastor. It is my deep privilege to serve this community and to welcome each of you here this evening and to welcome these good folks here to the uh, right of me. Dr. Catherine Meeks, executive director. <laughs> not yet, not yet, not yet. <laughs> executive director of the Absalom Jones Center. Welcome, Catherine. Joel Thompson, a uh, composer from Atlanta, studying at that, what's that small university on the East Coast that you brought? Yale University. <laughs> we'll, we'll accept it. Um, and we're gonna hear more from Joel, both in word, but also th the gift of his music in the service. There's a little plug there for worship after this plenary. And our own bishop, the Bishop of Atlanta, Rob Wright. Uh, he's no stranger to uh, this community, of course, and uh, you were just in this room a few weeks ago, stirring up trouble, and I've been dealing with it since, but we're going. Glutton for, <laughs> Glutton for punishment. I wonder if you could uh, just join me in offering a warm round of applause to say welcome. <laughs> I do want to, to thank uh, those who've traveled from other Episcopal churches now, if you're in the Diocese of Atlanta and you thought you came a long way, um, there's somebody got your beat to. We've got a, a brother from Augusta. Uh, we're so glad that you're with us. Thank you for making the drive. Uh, we're glad that you came for this event. Wonderful. We're glad you all came. I've got a very important notice just to say we'll be worshiping in our church, and we've been out of our church building for the last many weeks during the summer for renovations. And like any home renovation, the, the restrooms were the last to get done. They were just not quite ready. So there are no functioning restrooms over in the church. This is forewarning, but the ones here work very well. But I just wanted to advance warning, so if you prepare ahead of time, that's all I want to say. So we have some questions which we have uh, prepared ahead of time, um, and we will see if we have an opportunity to... Um, to engage you in an opportunity to ask questions as we go. I have tried to encourage the people to my right to be concise with their answers, and we shall see how that goes. Um, what are you looking at me for? I know, exactly. <laughs> but we're going to start with you, Joel, if we may. Um, I wanted to begin with the theme of art and memory and engagement. Um, Joel um, is a, a composer um, who is um, famous for lots of reasons, but particularly for one piece, um, The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Um, it is definitely worth looking up. It is definitely worth listening to. Um, and I know that you've been asked this question numerous times, but I wanted to begin there. Uh, what is your vision for how people might engage with your art? Maybe you want to, if you could just begin by saying a little bit about that piece. Okay. Uh, so I, I wrote the work, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, about five years ago, and uh, it was, it, sure, uh, sorry, it's on, it's on? okay, uh, I, I wrote the piece about five years ago, can you hear me now? Yes. Mm -hmm. Good, um, and uh, it was after the uh, grand jury, uh, the Staten Island grand jury chose not to indict the officer whose actions led to the death of Eric Garner. Um, that's still been in the news recently, and there's still been no accountability and no justice. And I think it was after that that I, my spirit was broken, and it was um, in that sort of 
mix of grief and pain and anger that I found the healthiest way to express all of that and to sort of exorcise those emotions was to write this piece. And um, the, it, this was after you know quite a, f a few deaths at the hands of authority figures. And uh, my reaction to that was maybe uh, if I were found in that same situation as Eric Garner, that my parents wouldn't expect justice. And so in the center of that grief, I decided to uh, humanize uh, these men. I chose, um, I found a, a, a pictogram series on Twitter. Um, an Iranian-American journalist by the name of Shirin Bargi found the last words of unarmed black men that were killed and paired them with a simple image. and. It was so moving to me, so I figured I'd make a musical version of that. Uh, I modeled it after the liturgical seven last words of Christ, not to deify these men, but to humanize them. I think in the liturgy, say, Jesus saying, I'm thirsty, you think of his humanity. Um, and so I wanted to emphasize the humanity of these men because they've sort of been torn down due to the mental gymnastics that we do to sort of justify their deaths um, because there's no justice involved. Um, and so where there's a maternal connection in the liturgy where Jesus says, um, son, this is thy mother, mother, this is thy son, to John and, and Mary from the cross, I use Amadou Diallo's last words, which were to his mom over the phone, mom, I'm going to college. So it's, it's organized according to that liturgy to humanize these men. And after I wrote the piece, um, I felt better, <laughs> um, and I put it away. But then Freddie Gray died in the April afterwards, and I was like, this has to go out and do something. I, I need people to hear it. Um, and it's since been championed by uh, Dr. Eugene Rogers at the University of Michigan, whose recording is on YouTube, and you can and engage with it there. But to your original question about how I feel that audiences should engage with this art, it's still a question that I'm asking myself. It's very difficult for me to listen to it. It's a very um, uh, raw, vulnerable piece. Uh, it's akin to someone reading your journal entry out loud. Um, I, I did not expect anyone to listen to it. It was really just a personal exercise to get those emotions out so that I could move on from the depression that I was in. Um, but now that I've... Now that it's in the world, I've seen responses, um, mostly of catharsis, um, coming from the recognition that someone is feeling the same thing that I'm feeling in response to these tragedies. Um, some people f use the piece as a way to engage with this very uh, difficult topic. It, it starts dialogue. We, we, we don't really like talking about uncomfortable subjects, and this one is very uncomfortable, and so uh, the music provides a little window in for some people to engage with it and ask questions and, and get uncomfortable and talk about race and, and life and loss and grief in general. Um, so that's how I hope it continues um, to engage with audiences. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. And, and it, it strikes me how, that I love that phrase, that we share feelings, that we've got a disconnection of feeling. Um, in today's America, I mean, let's just say today's world, mm -hmm. um, all over the place. I, I want to open the question up, the next question up to, to, to the three of you about um, how might our feelings connect with one another? How might we encourage people um, to, to feel their way through this 400th anniversary? 
and journey and back. I think that people, first of all, have to come to grips with the fact that black people are, white people have to come to grips with the fact that black people are just like them, humans. And that we have all of the same kinds of feelings and all of the same kinds of possibilities. The reason why we have so much trouble connecting is because we set up these hierarchies and decided some folks were different and better and all these things that have, that have contributed to creating the systems that we have in this country. So the very first piece of work that has to be done is for white people to come to grips with black people are human and just like you. And then you can go from there, getting to know people, getting to be involved with people, and knowing that, that this is no different in terms of just the universal, existential capacity to be a human being. Yes, we've got different stuff, we've got different stories. That's not the problem. We've got this mindset that somehow people with black skin or brown skin are just not quite in the same species as people with white skin. And that's a problem. Well, I agree with whatever Catherine says as a, <laughs> as a, as a general matter. Um, I think that if we're going to actually move the needle on conversation and then maybe increase the square footage of justice in our churches, uh, in our cities, counties, and beyond, I think that um, some people are going to have to decide to increase their capacity to be undefended. Hmm. And so I, I'm, uh, it's funny to me, I'm German, Irish, and African. And so the, the whole human species thing is fun. Can you imagine what a conundrum I was in 1963? <laughs> <laughs> See me afterwards, I'll tell you a story. But I think that, I think that um, some of us are not aware at, uh, uh, about the great um, investment we have made in really false narratives. Um, false narratives have been uh, promoted because we need to keep a certain national mythology going forward and, and, uh, and it's cracking now. It, we, it, the genie's out of the bottle, toothpaste is out of the tube, it's, it's cracking and it's oozing everywhere. And uh, I feel like, and you would expect this from me, I feel like um, the people who gather at the foot of a lynching tree every Sunday uh, and take a share in the body and the blood uh, who populate a really big table where all are welcome, really are already sort of, or should be, I'll say should, should be on the way um, to increasing that capacity to be undefended. Uh, Jeff Lee is the Bishop of Chicago, uh, says that life with Christ really is, and this is the gesture, is really about moving towards The, em the, embodiment, the embodiment of, uh, of the cross. And so I think that 
Uh, I'm really interested in soulful excellence and Christian maturity. Uh, we've got a whole lot of pews sitting and not a lot of, of, uh, of Christian growing. And so I think that w one of the ways, and that's, that's not an indictment of any, any particular group, that's, I think that's, a, that's for all of us who claim uh, life in baptism. But I think if we're gonna have an active, I said active life with Jesus Christ, you're gonna have to give away three things. Smallness, separation, and superiority. You cannot have an actively engaged life with Jesus of Nazareth as the Bible portrays him if you are not uh, uh, opening those arms and allowing him to have more of you. And so uh, I think that's where I would start. I think when we begin that journey, when we forsake superiority and separateness and the smallness that we maintain and nourish, we end up beside people and we end up feeling alongside people, which is really the best mark of our humanity. I love the, <coughs> I'm not just saying this because you're sitting next to me, but I do love that line in the diocesan, I think it's on the diocesan website, widening the circle. It's a line I've stolen and used many times. And it, it, that it's, this is a, not only a question I've got down here, it's a real question for me, is how to widen that circle in terms of the people that say, you know what, this conversation is about me too. This conversation needs me in it. Uh, this conversation, um, uh, this circle needs to be wider, and I see myself there. Um, what, this is a practical question, what have you seen if our trajectory is toward hope, which is certainly where our liturgy this evening will take us, what have you seen that has worked in terms of widening that circle? And, and Joel, I, I, when I thought about that question and we, we, we had a little open source uh, t uh, way to get to these questions, I did think about art and how powerful that has been. And we'll, we'll bear witness to that this evening through the liturgy, but I'm, th that, just maybe in a nutshell, what have you seen work? Practical examples that people could take home or just be inspired by? I'm, I'm looking at all of you. I'm just, uh, I'm trying to. <laughs> well, I, I was um, recently uh, a part of a performance of Seven Last Words uh, in Tallahassee. Uh, Tallahassee Symphony Orchestra performed it with the Morehouse Glee Club and uh, the Florida A&M University Chorus, the tenors and basses of that, that ensemble. And, um, yeah, it was, it was the first time that I had seen uh, a complete choir homogeneously sort of their skin color matching the text, the, 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 the source of the, the, the text that they were singing. Um, and so they brought to it their lived experiences um, to the performance. And um, it's generally known that classical music is a predominantly white genre and in, in institution, and so to see a predominantly white orchestra with a homo homogeneously black um, choir um, engaging in this piece, and also I was interviewed by the sheriff of Leon County um, and two members of the board um, on separate um, sides of the political aisle, and um, all of us in that moment, in that space, agreeing on the sanctity of life. Um, through uh, facilitating conversations through the music. I think it, um, yeah, it was a very powerful experience. And uh, 
that's just one example of it working. Uh, I, I think um, I think it worked. The energy in the room was amazing. I had never seen a more diverse classical music hall in my life. Um, and so people were in that hall for the first time because they were engaging with music that connected to their lived experiences. And so I'm hoping to offer more opportunities um, to have to create those spaces um, with my music. Um, and that's just one example, but I'm sure there's more. So I, I think that's fantastic. I think the arts have always have been a place where we've been willing to come together. But I also think that you've got to go deeper than being in a, in a symphony hall together. Folks are willing to go do that, which is fantastic. But then what do you do on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, and when you're sitting in the boardroom making decisions that impact the lives of people who don't look like you? So the Center for Racial Healing engages in the work of transformation. Because until people get something transformed in them, they will keep on doing whatever it is they've been doing. And I travel all over the country now, uh, not intentionally, but it just has happened, with the work of the Episcopal Church and doing the racial healing work. And I'm beginning to see more and more people who are Christians who are willing to finally say, they've got to get beyond just the window dressing. You know, we, we've hidden out talking about racial reconciliation for a very long time, and it's time that we got over it and started talking about real healing. And real healing is about engaging one another at some level where we begin to encounter one another's humanity and begin to really get to know people and get to feel what people feel. And I'm seeing little, little signs of that, and it's encouraging. We've got a long ways to go a very long way to go. But I do see people getting on the road, and I'm really thankful for that. So this is about what are the practical aspects of this. Um, one of the, the definitions, the definition I, I sort of uh, keep as a North Star around uh, leadership is the capacity to mobilize people to address tough problems, especially problems they'd rather avoid. Right, that's the best definition. All the clergy are sick of me saying that, but that's the definition I'm, I'm working with. The capacity to mobilize people to address tough problems, especially problems they'd rather vo avoid. And so as a very practical matter, what I've tried to do is increase the diocese's w um, bandwidth to have conversations that we specifically would rather avoid. And so I'm glad for the partnership of this parish and the leadership in this parish to have a willingness to uh, interrogate our common life together. I think we've got to increase our bandwidth to do that. And I think if we're going to do anything that's really useful and uh, deserving uh, or really worthy of, uh, of the words we use on Sunday, it's, it's got to be you and I finding a space to uh, admit how we have, I'm talking to everybody in the room, no matter what the color is, um, of how we've colluded with the system. Uh, the definition of the status quo is, is that it's a, it's a system in place that works for the majority of people. And so, and so if, if, if we're ever going to change anything, if we're ever going to increase the square footage of that, we're going to have to decide that we're going to examine our uh, partnership uh, uh, with the system as it is. And when we begin to individually uh, start to work on that, then I think that it produces uh, wonderful uh, results. Um, Dr. King had a wonderful quote, which is my new favorite quote now, which is, uh, justice is love overthrowing everything that is not love. Mm -hmm. 
That was worth the drive right there, right? <laughs> so, so let me just give you that again because I, I, the reason why I commend it to you is because it is, it is something that can guide our steps on Monday through Saturday before we get to the altar on Sunday. That is justice is love overthrowing everything that is not love. And so part of baptism is deciding that you're on that team and that that is happening to you and your ongoing yes to God and I will with God's help. And part of that is uh, when you occupy whatever space of authority that you have and making sure you bring that along to boardrooms or financial decisions or family decisions or whatever it is. I think that uh, we can dance tonight and, and not say what I'm about to say, but we have to say it. I think that what we're, in some ways, what we're commemorating uh, tonight is 400 years of stolen labor. Where do smart people in the room? I mean, take out your calculators. Where would you begin to start? And now I'm not, I'm not uh, disproportionately uh, uh, hard on the South because uh, the little known narrative is that the North made way more money than we made here in the South. And we've got the privilege of living up close and we had a certain uh, uh, gift for brutality here, but they got the dollars there. And so Rhode Island is having this conversation as, as necessary and all the new, so I mean we've done this as a family We've done this as an American family. And one of the things we're gonna have to give away in little ways, and I hope that in ways that we're facilitating with Catherine's work and my work and just having these conversations, is to begin to stop giving ourselves permission uh, to live into a contrived innocence. You're not innocent. It's contrived, it's entirely contrived. Uh, and nobody's off the hook. Nobody, black or brown and white. Nobody's off the hook. And so I think on a day-to-day, -day, I mean, and there's no condemnation there. This is the good news about the gospel. The gospel comes around right, right, right as soon as we get there, as soon as we decide that we can face that, right? The gospel comes right around and says, you know, in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation, which is to say somehow in God's eyes, we're better than our worst decision as individuals and as a culture. And there's this wonderful opportunity of now, and so uh, when we can cough up some of this mucus that has kept our breathing really shallow here in this country, then we can make a way forward. But not until then. I mean, Catherine has a wonderful phrase, and that is every, everybody has to do their work. No preacher can preach your work into you. I mean, all of us are going to have to do the work. And, and, you know, the thing about it is, is that even though you and I might not have been on plantations or oversaw plantations or whatever, because we are part of an American family, it is nevertheless a lie. Mm -hmm. It's in this room right now. Because we are in this room right now. And so what we have to do is realize that it's pernicious, uh, but, it, you know, if the gospel is true, it doesn't have to have the last word. And so we bear this in our body every day and try to live that out in real ways uh, as we are at boardrooms and beyond. Uh, so that's, uh, there you go. Well, I'd love to build on, on that. Um, and I wonder if you could help us um, some more think about what it is that we are remembering. Um, I know Catherine, you've talked about, you've been wondering about resilience. Um, 
when we, it's a, on, on Tuesday, we'll, we'll, we'll um, join others around the city to observe four minutes of silence, um, part of an effort um, led by our own Comey Yates and many people around the city to, to draw to mind the, the silencing particularly of African-American boys uh, in schools, tracing that line. And as we were contemplating that this week and trying to find a way to talk about it, every time I've had, I've, I've failed drastically um, to come up with the right way of describing it. Because how do you put, how do you put 400 years into, into words? So I wonder if we could go there a little bit more about what is it that that, that role of memory, the church does have that vocation to remember, yet we've been struggling with a profound amnesia Okay. Catherine, could you just? Jo I think Joel's. We've given you the trick microphone. I apologize. Well, is it not on? We, if you use, it, he, I don't know. Is there it you go. Mind? Now we've got you. But, but you heard me because I have a big mouth. Well, I'll get rid of that one. <laughs> so I don't know the real answer, but what I know is that there's mystery here, and we have to make ourselves available to that, and so we try, and. Howard Thurman, who's, if you don't know him, you should, so go home and look him up uh, after this is over tonight. Howard Thurman says that he spent a lot of his time being preoccupied with what it was that made the people who were ki kidnapped from Africa be able to survive in this land, separated from everything that was native to them. And, and I, in some ways, I don't think that we've ever recovered from that kidnapping because there's still missing links for us as people of African descent that I don't know that we'll ever be able to recover. But what I know is that we have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. We have to keep struggling. We have to keep singing. We have to keep dancing. And what Thurman's question was, what was it that made the slave able to survive and to decide that life was worth living. And I think uh, today, this week, th this month, we are remembering the system that started to doing, to, that was set up, that did that kind of stripping people, reducing people to something that was described as non-human, and yet people of African descent defied it. And here we sit. Here we are. We have created and we made, we made, we did a lot to make this country. And in spite of that, to start out with that kind of deprivation. So, so I'm inclined to believe that we all have got to pay attention to what the, the deprivation was, but also to struggle to see what was the remedy. There was some capacity to connect to God, to a God that we don't know a whole lot about because we made up God and, you know, to suit us. But you don't make up God when everything has been taken from you. You get to, you get to a different understanding. So I just think that there's some amazing threads that we need to kind of find our way back to and, and try to weave into this tapestry if we want, if I'm not sure that America is interested in being well, but I do think the church needs to be interested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, 
And if we are interested in being well, then struggling with what was taken and how did they survive and how did we get here is worth the journey. And I think that for me, that's my everyday life is getting up in the mornings ready to engage that, engage the, the questions and ready to, to keep living into those questions because I just think the, the willingness to struggle with the questions and to struggle with how you can even talk about all of this is a part of the way to healing. Um, what you just said really inspired me. Um, as a black man, everything I do is inherently political, especially in the uh, world of classical music. So if I choose to address social justice issues or issues relating to my identity and my music, that is inherently seen as political and sometimes um, avoided. And if I choose not to write about it, if I choose to write about butterflies, that is also inherently political because I am a black man choosing not to write about this. But you describing this journey of asking those questions as um, a journey of towards healing, um, I defi that definitely um, connected to me on a fundamental level. So thank you for sharing that. So, um, what was the question? <laughs> I mean, you know, listen to these two, you just, mind takes flight. Um, I think one of the things that I just want to sort of read into the record is, is that I think that, um, uh, you know, I want to honor you here for showing up tonight. Um, you didn't have to be here, you could be anywhere. So there's something, some part of t tonight that, that you wanted to be a part of. And so, you know, as we finish up here and as, as if you join us for worship in just a bit, I, I wonder, could you be present to your own question, which is, what, what did you come here for? What do, what do you want here? Um, I, I think that that can be a doorway uh, into, you know, your own sort of bespoke revelation or blessing is, is why did you come here? Um, you know, I came here uh, in part because Catherine told me to come here and... Uh, Stop it. I, I'm, I'm just playing around with Catherine. No, I, 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 came, I came here because, um, you know, I, so I went to Howard University, uh, which, is, uh, which is in Washington, D.C., and I worked three jobs. I put myself through college after being in the Navy for five years, and I used to sit in one of the little rooms in the, in the library, Moreland Spingarn, to be exact, if you know that little library room. It's maybe not a, I mean, maybe as big as that piano. And uh, it was decorated with wonderful old books, but around the molding uh, were all these wonderful black and white photographs of people. Uh, black men and women that I did not know and who were not distinguished enough for us to know if we called the names. And I felt like I owed them something. I felt like I owed them excellence. I felt like I owed them a continuation of um, trying to help the country of their birth understand that they had God-given dignity. And so, and so one of the things that's really difficult as an ex-serviceman and as, as an African-American is always having to convince your country that you are deserving in its full measure of the title citizen. 
um, especially when uh, systems uh, and individuals have been very clever at trying to write you out of that uh, equation. And so I feel like, um, at least for me personally, um, I'm here because I feel like I, I owe the gospel and I owe uh, those who've gone before, white and black alike, who dared to dream of a beloved community and try to make that real. I mean, we're in Georgia, right? Oglethorpe tried. Oglethorpe tried. This was founded as a gospel experiment. It's just that we decided at some point that cotton was more profitable. And, and, and Oglethorpe's vision was taken away. So, I mean, there have been people, generations, white and black alike, who have endeavored to live out incarnate the beloved community. And I think, as Catherine has said, um, because we didn't score a touchdown today doesn't mean we stop trying to march the ball down the field. And so I think that's what judgment may look like, if, if there's anything called judgment, is, is that for all of the ocean of communion wine you've drunk, and, uh, you know, and a barn full of communion bread that you've taken, did you progress Christ's purpose in your lifetime? Not that we solved it, but on your watch, did, did it progress? And I, I feel like that's, a, that's an invitation, it's a conviction, that's an opportunity, and a privilege, really, to have a purpose that big in the world uh, that can impact so many. So, But I, I, you know, that's sort of where I'm at. But I, I'm, I'm inviting you to think and distill for yourself uh, why you're here and what you want and what you want out of a conversation like this going forward. I think there's, there, there may be some benefit to that. That's a, a beautiful invitation to worship to bring your question to that space. We're not going to go there yet. We've got about 10 minutes. I'd love to offer an opportunity uh, for you to ask a question if you have one. And I'm just going to ask that it's a question. Uh, uh, not a paragraph with a question, but just the question. But if you do have one, I'd love to, I'll bring the mic to you so that it can be picked up in the recording. But did anybody, has anybody brought a question into the room? I see you, Lawrence. I'm coming around the outside. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> How do I do this? You just speak into the microphone. Okay. Um, I'm Lawrence, and I'm here tonight. I just swallow hard because I fear um, violence around these kind of gatherings now. But what are three things I can do this week to take the ball down the field besides be nice? Um, I dropped my child off at a, a very diverse school, so I don't want to say that's taken care of, but what, what do I do practically speaking? Where do you work? right now <laughs> I got I, I got let go as a freelancer from CNN um, yeah. not let go just not you but telling the truth uh, actually yes okay not so, about this but yes so you can keep doing that telling the truth to whoever is in your sphere small circle we always want to go out somewhere so telling the truth and being awake enough to know what the truth is to tell and I think that anywhere you go today in this country there'll be an opportunity for you to tell the truth to somebody because there'll be a conversation there'll be something 
And to have, I don't know what you do every day in your life, but uh, I think that if you go, if you get up in the morning with this intention that today you will be as honest as you can be in every circumstance, that, it, that you will find more than three things to do. So I would answer that as a parent. So, so how old is your young person? Not, oh, perfect. So I'm a father of five, so I feel, I feel your pain. So, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things I think I'm, I'm the gift that I, one of the gifts I, think, I hope I'm giving my children is to um, help them to, to sort of be more investigative. And so when I was a little boy, I loved, uh, I used to love Tarzan, man. You know, Saturday, Johnny Weissmiller, yeah. And it, it wasn't until I went to, to college where somebody said, hey, did you ever think that, uh, you know, it, it took uh, one white man falling out of an airplane could be the king of the jungle in a continent, an entire black continent. Oh. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's not just white folks who have to take another look at these narratives. You know, how, how is it that the wealthiest uh, 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 continent uh, with the first, uh, you know, surgeons and libraries and so on. H how is it that, you know, just one random white dude falling out the sky could become the king of the jungle, right? We have to investigate that. So I think maybe the gift you give your kid is really a wonderful pantheon of men and women uh, from all walks of life who have created art and beauty and uh, learning, et cetera. I think that's one of the things we do and just make, make sure that they understand that knowledge and dignity is not sort of concentrated in one group of people that God has made. I think that may be the best gift that they see that, that God has endowed so many people with so many gifts. I think that's a gift. I'm heading your way. Thank you very much. Uh, my perspective may be a little different. Uh, my name is Dr. Lisa Bratton, and I have to say my name because I'm a fifth-generation descendant of historic Brattonsville. It's a, a plantation in York County, South Carolina. It's a historic site. And so I can go back to the exact land where my ancestors were enslaved in. Um, so, much, so many of us cannot. But my perspective is that until the economic piece of this begins to get solved, that there, I don't, that's where we need to begin. Um, I went to Charleston to a few weeks ago to Magnolia Plantation. Magnolia Plantation was started when a man gave 2,000 acres of stolen indigenous land to his daughter as a gift. At the same time, African people, a family of seven or 10 is living in a space this small. And so when you have those kinds of continuous, that level of continuous economic exploitation, among uh, waged against African people, that is really the part that also has to change. And I feel like now we're speaking to the choir because the, for white people, the very fact that you're here says that you have some level of consciousness. But there are billions of people out in the world that don't have that consciousness. And so we need to address the economic piece of this and also the people who are not in the choir. Thank you. So I want to disagree with you about the choir. I don't think there is a choir. 
because all of us have got a lot of work to do. All of us in this room have got work to do. So I, 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 every time someone says that, I understand what you mean, that there are people that are at least willing to show up in this space, but I do want to go on record saying there is no choir when it comes to this. You know, it, uh, let me just add to, you know, one of the things that I have learned, I appreciate your comment, one of the things I have learned is too is, is that showing up, people show up to these kind of conversations for lots of different reasons. You know, this is not my first trip, uh, you know, around the, around the mulberry bush. Some people come to uh, get some self-flagellation so that they can excuse themselves from the deeper economic conversation, right? I mean, you know, sort of the under, underbelly of narcissism, right? And so, and so it, it, what, I, what I take away from what you said is, is that, so where do you start, the chicken or the egg? The truth of the matter is, is that what we really need is more white subversives. We really need people, like, perhaps like some of the people in this room and other rooms, who, who get the dignity piece, and therefore they can help us wage the justice conversation and the economic conversation, right? Because we've been trying to have the economic conversation on its merits, and here we are 400 years, right? And so I'm, I'm with you, so, it's, it's, so I'm at the strategic level, right? So how do we do that? There are boardrooms that I'm not in, but if I have an ally in that room, who gets this dignity piece, perhaps that moves the cause forward. But it's a, it's a conundrum. It is, is, it is a conundrum, so. But I, we need more white subversives. And those people are supposed to be called Christians. Yeah! There's that! <laughs> Uh, my name is Harris Allen, and uh, I actually began the work uh, that I'm really invested in now, taking a course with Catherine here six months ago. Um, it seems to me that we are now in the throes of a gigantic pushback, huge. And it's getting, it, it's a real concern. My question to you is, how do we address this? A pushback from uh, at the political level and, and so forth. I, I can be very specific, but I think everybody in this room understands what I'm talking about. So my question to you is, how do we address this constructively? In 60 seconds, in that's 60 what you got left. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, you're going you're gonna to keep hearing the same thing from me because I, it, it actually is the sort of the model that we see let loose in the gospel, which is Jesus democratizes leadership. And he simply asks people, what do you care about? And he says, okay, based on that purpose, joining me in that purpose, how can you mobilize, right? And so I think what we've got to continue to do is do our work, be mobilized by you know, what we say is very, very important to us, and then find allies to do that. I mean, we live in a democratic situation. I mean, you know, I, you, you know the obvious answer, right, is you're going to have to vote it. You're going to have to vote it. We're going to have to mobilize in ways like perhaps we've not mobilized before to vote people in who get, who get this piece. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe what we've seen over the last two and some odd years is going to mobilize enough people where we can get some of that done. 
Um, but I think that whether we're talking Democrat or Republican, n neither party um, uh, seems to really get it. And so I think that we're going to have to continue in small groups uh, in our spheres of influence to mobilize around this sort of thing. I mean, you know, Brian Stevenson, uh, who's done an amazing job, you know, Harvard-educated lawyer, uh, could have gone off and done anything, had decided, I mean, it's the best example, Exhibit A I can give you, someone is an omnicompetent person just says, I'm going to do this. I, you know, the good news is, is that I talked to young seminarians, some of them are here right now, I'm hearing more people wanting to do that in the ways that young people wanted to do that in the early 60s, where they have just, they've had it, and they want to now put the flesh into it. I'm seeing more people forsaking, you know, the possibility of making lots of money, which is not a bad thing, but they are saying now it seems that there's something more important. And so how can we fan those flames? How can we help them know that we, we want to support them, some of us can write checks, we can get them educated, whatever we can do. I think that's uh, some of what we can do. But there's no substitute for deciding that you're going to put your intellect and your flesh into this thing full time. And I just want to say that times are not any worse than they've ever been. We just have more talk about it. If you ask black and brown people in this country, we've never been liberated. And now there's just, you know, this, the, someone from Japan uh, media was called me this week to talk about the resurgence of white nationalism. And I said, it's not a resurgence. It's just that it's more, somebody took the lid off the pot that was on the stove. And so, so please, don't be distracted by how bad it is, because it's been bad all the time. It's just been under the surface. And so it's up on the surface. And if you talk to black and brown people, you will get verification for the fact that black and brown people are not nearly as disturbed about the present moment as white people. <laughs> because for us, for, I'm gonna tell the truth, for us, it's like, in a way, we're kind of glad because some of you progressives have got to get off the stool because it's too bad for you to just act like it's okay. Honestly. So, you know, you thought it was okay, and now you see it's not. So, so Harris, I think that, yeah, there's pushback, but there's been pushback, pushback. I mean, we've, we've come through segregation, we've come through lynchings, we've come through all this stuff. So you've got some crazy folks running around in elected office, we need to get rid of them. But in the meantime, we need to just get on up and go do the work and don't be distracted. Turn off the TV so you can quit hearing that foolishness and go do your work because it's not really any worse than it's ever been. <laughs> So bringing it home, um, I would just offer an invitation. This is the, the beginning, the middle, but not the end of a conversation. Um, that we're in a place of unknowing, um, but faith is offering uh, a way ahead when we can't see the destination. I want to offer an invitation uh, to join um, parishes around this diocese in supporting the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing. 
that it is here, right here in our backyard, particularly our backyard here at All Saints, and we give thanks for that. There is a, a conversation partner to help us get off the stool and then try to figure out what the hee-haw we do next, but at least begin with getting off the stool. And I invite you to this time of worship now, and as our bishop has invited us to do, to bring our questions, bring just an enough dissonance to carry you through to Monday so that Monday may matter in a different way. That's our hope here at All Saints, and we give thanks uh, for your presence here. We give thanks, we're not finished with it yet, but we give thanks uh, for this part of the evening and for all that's been shared and for all that's been shared in your hearts. So we will begin worship. They've got a whole thing about being prompt here on this block with worship. So it's gonna begin at seven o'clock, whether I like it or not, but we're gonna head our way over there. Thank you for being uh, with us for this part of the evening. I encourage you to join us for worship at seven.